0: He said, I was always trying to heal a wound. Ben Kingsley is an English actor, and throughout his career spanning over 50 years, he's garnered so many accolades, including an Academy Award, a British Academy (laughs) Film Award, a Screen Actors Guild Award, a Grammy Award, and two Golden Globes. In 2010, he was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 2013, he received the Britannia Award for Worldwide Contribution to Filmed Entertainment. He says this, if you asked a great Manchester United football player, now you scored one goal. Does that take the pressure off? He would say, no, I've got to score two. The pressure is never, never off. Not if you're a real actor. Actors, storytellers, gladiators. There's an ancient tribe of us who've been put into an arena for some reason and the danger never leaves us. It's that constant longing to accomplish more. And he says that right behind all of it was this huge effort to heal a wound. According to an interview with The Independent, Kingsley's wound stems back to his own childhood, which he's described as a cold and loveless upbringing. His early years as a child actor came without any family encouragement at all. He says, whenever I performed and my parents were in the audience, I got nothing back. Zero feedback. It was hard to cope with. One always wondered what I'd done wrong. That was the family feeling in the house. You always had to guess what you'd done wrong. You were always being tacitly punished for something. And he spent a lifetime trying not to be ordinary, trying to excel, trying to be exceptional, trying to heal that deep wound within. Nobody wants to be ordinary or as the British say, common. There may be qualities about ourselves that we wish were more like everybody else, but most of us want to excel. We want to be successful. We want to stand out in a good way. We want to be someone uh, and and to be with someone. I mean, how many times have I seen two people who are Both in love with Jesus, both have godly character, both have such commonalities, but they've been really good friends for fifteen years, and so neither of them could ever imagine marrying the other one. I'm sitting here looking like this is the the obvious, but but no, that person's too common. They're too ordinary. I already know them. There's no mystery there. They're ordinary. We can easily hate the ordinary things of life, doing laundry, washing dishes, washing the car, cutting the cat's toenails, sweeping the floor. We dream of escaping from all of that, escaping to some place exotic, some place different, some place more mysterious, some place that all those things don't need doing. It's why the grass always seems greener in another pasture. This pasture's too ordinary. I already know these folks. A different job looks better. A different church looks better. A different town looks better. This one's gotten dull and uninteresting. Perhaps I could move to another city. St. Louis seems just so ordinary. No little boy grows up saying, Someday I want to be a second-tier stockroom clerk. Not many, at least. No little girl grows up thinking, someday I'm going to have a small homely wedding with a borrowed dress and carnations and a basement reception with Velveeta and pigs in a blanket. Not many people say they want to be average. Not many people aspire to make C's. We, we, we don't dream about running the vacuum someday. We want spectacular. We want amazing. We want different. We want exceptional lives and to be around exceptional people and go to exceptional places because we want to be exceptional. And yet you look at those who have achieved that, and it's never enough, and it can't make them whole, and it can't make them happy. We're about to read an account of Jesus going to his own hometown with people who considered him ordinary. The carpenter's son, to Nazareth, where he grew up, to people who thought they knew him already. It's the record of how the people who had had known him his whole life responded to Jesus and why they responded that way. We may never have diapered the baby Jesus, but some of them had. Um, you know, But I think there's a word for us here as well to lay open our own hearts and to see the real Jesus and his real salvation at work in our real lives. This is the gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 14, the gospel of Christ. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, which is how they taught. Everybody else would be standing up, but the teacher sets down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, And he began saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote me this proverb Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Not Israel, but Gentile lands. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove Jesus out of the town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What was the problem with Jesus? The problem, as they saw it in Nazareth, is that he was ordinary. Jesus was born in a cattle stall. He was fully human, and they knew that. This was his hometown. They had known him as a child. There's a lot of docetism these days, which is a heresy that that perceives of Jesus as merely God and not truly human as well. And and, and yet, it, it's wrong, because Jesus was fully human in every way as we are, but without the sin. You know, that means that, that Jesus had body odor. He had that crust that forms in the corner of your eyes when you sleep. He had at some point he may have been involved with diapers using the bathroom and phlegm when he gets sick and he had fingerprints that could be left on stuff he had a belly button he had nose hairs he had pores in his skin this was this was no theophany just an appearance of god momentarily this was this this wasn't temporary this was a permanent incarnation a permanent permanent God becoming man in Jesus, even to the point where Jesus then rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father because the incarnation was permanent. There is still a human being interceding for you at the right hand of the Father, and he is God the Son, Jesus. Greg, you're trying to tell me that God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Well, sort of. And if you're 40 years old or older, you got that. But as a candidate for Messiah, Jesus had the limitations of being the internal candidate in Nazareth. Listen to the scuttlebutt around town as Jesus shows up and starts teaching and healing. People spoke well of him at first, but then they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Don Carson explains the initial statements represent the crowd's positive reaction to the message's rhetorical power and hopeful character. However, the question about sonship is the product of the crowd's reflective thought since Jesus' heritage does not match, in their view, the nature of his claim. He's claiming to be the Messiah, the one spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, the one who would bring the true year of Jubilee, when when flourishing would again happen within Israel, and God's people would be reconciled to him, and their sins forgiven. And they're sitting here looking at this kid that grew up in their own streets, and they're saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Where did this man get all these wise and high and mighty thoughts? Where did he get the power for these works he's doing? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all these things? He's just an ordinary guy. He's just a Nazarene guy. He grew up here. He's nothing special. And they were off, and they were offended, that, that here he is claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. When he's just a normal guy like they are. The Messiah is supposed to be a king. Jesus is is an ordinary guy. When Messiah comes, they're picturing trumpets blowing and armies and horses and crowds and fanfare and sparklers and unicorns and all sorts of amazing stuff, but not the guy who used to make repairs around the village. Jesus had been the carpenter. He was a refugee kid as a child. He was an exile from his birth. He was poor. He owned no home during his earthly ministry. He had nothing. He was nothing. Who does he think he is? Familiarity does that. Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. We changed your diapers, Jesus. Your butt smelled just like everybody else's. And now you're telling us you're the savior of the world, huh? Well, you'll never be more than a Nazareth boy. You're a carpenter. Don't tell me the Son of God goes around fixing up furniture on the back street where I dump my rubbish every day. I've known you for thirty years. You're not going to pass yourself off as some oh, someone of, of importance here. Don't get above your station, Jesus. He says no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. It was a built-in bias. They were offended because he was too ordinary. What they wanted instead was some spectacle. You know, Jesus said, surely you're going to ask me to do the same miracles here that I did in Capernaum. Um, but he explains to them that there's no family discount with this kind of stuff. Just the fact that he did something there doesn't mean they're going to use him to get a whole bunch of free miracles. That's not how this works. And so when he explains that to them, uh, they, they take him. Actually, Nazareth is built on a, on a hill and you can go up to the top of the hill, or you can go up the hill on the other side of the valley, and it's pretty steep, pretty high, definitely throwing off of that cliff would definitely be fatal. Um, there's, they're not threatening to break his arms and legs by throwing him off a little hill. This is bad, this is ugly, and they want him dead. Um, but but for Jesus, being flung off a high cliff would be too spectacular of a death. He's going to die you know, as a common criminal between two common criminals being crucified just like other criminals. He's going to get a shameful death. I mean, you ask a Muslim today what they find most problematic about Christianity, and there several answers that they might give, but, but very often uh, it's this notion that God came in the flesh. That to them is shameful and humiliating for a God of glory and greatness. Um, but it could also be the thought that Jesus died uh, among sinners you know that that would be too shameful a death for a muslim prophet like jesus and so the, the story is that, uh, that that his disciples actually swapped him out for judas and judas was crucified and jesus just descended into heaven um you know would you think that that, that jesus would let the godless just grab him and flog him and torture him and nail him to a cross and, and murder him like a common criminal. It would be too shameful, too, too without honor. It would be too common, too disgraceful, and too ordinary a death. The, the people of his own hometown in Nazareth were offended by Jesus' ordinariness. He lived an ordinary life, and he was going to have a fairly ordinary criminal's death that's the problem. Jesus was too ordinary. So what was the problem with the salvation that he was bringing? The problem with the salvation he was bringing is that it was too ordinary as well. You look at Jesus' teaching on salvation, and it's all about restoring the ordinary from the things that have robbed it of its meaning. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight from the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are all the things that, that, that rob life of its joy and its goodness and its meaning. And he's saying, those things I'm getting rid of in order to restore ordinary life. Today, he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a vision of ordinary life freed from all the things that imbue it with misery. Good news for people who are needy, Freedom for people who are in prison, whether it's prisoners of other people or prisoners of sin. Blind people get to see whether they're physically blind or spiritually blind. Repressed people become released from the repression. This isn't talking about clouds and harps. He's talking about ordinary life with its ordinary routines being redeemed. I mean, who dreams of that? How many of you, when you envision the coming age and all of its glory, the life to come, the great hereafter, picture yourselves in your resurrected body sweeping the floor, or cooking a meal, or doing the dishes, or working in the lawn, or folding laundry We assume that the coming age pulls all of that behind us because those are ordinary things, and we think that God's salvation is the removal of the boring, ordinary things. We don't find those things particularly fulfilling, and so we contemplate an escape from that, but that's not something that Jesus is offering. Jesus immersed himself in the ordinary, ordinary people. He had an ordinary job. He was a carpenter, you know, uh, uh, he was... an. He went to an ordinary synagogue every week, not like the not the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, but no, his local synagogue. It says, as was his custom every Sabbath, um, even Jesus felt he needed to go to church, and he was perfect. Uh, ordinary people, ordinary job. He he had ordinary relationships with ordinary people. He came not to break the cycle of the ordinary, but to redeem it, to help us find fulfillment in the ordinary as a calling from him, as the context in which we relate to him. And this was always the plan. Back in Genesis 2, before the fall, before there was sin and suffering and death, and before we had lost our relationship with God, it's what we just read this morning, that, that adam was put in the garden to do what to work it and till it because work fulfilling work within your calling was always a part of god's calling it's only sin that has brought suffering and pain and misery into that work but we were made to work we were made we weren't made to sit on a cloud with a harp we were made to be fully human And that's what Jesus came to redeem. Brother Lawrence in the 1600s made made his common business, the context, the, the, the mundane and the routine, the context for experiencing the love and presence of God. The issue was not the sacredness or worldly status of the task at hand, but the motivation behind it. He said this, Nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of God. And that done, if there's nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. And yet that is the cosmic scope of Jesus' salvation, to rescue and save the ordinary. In Genesis 1, you see a garden, and then it falls. But by Revelation 21 and the end of the biblical story, that garden has become a city, and all the kings of the earth are bringing their glories into it, and the peoples of the earth are bringing their splendor, all their cultural riches, all of it redeemed and washed and cleansed and offered to God as tribute. When Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth He was not promising them a burned-up cinder, but rather restored earth at the resurrection when everything will be made right. Romans 8 speaks of that expectation that the creation itself is eagerly waiting for the day of, of the resurrection when they will be liberated from their bondage to decay, not eradicated, but liberated from the decay that they experience on our account. Beyond heaven, we see the resurrection. You think of Isaiah's prophecy of the wolf and the lion and the lamb and a little child leading them, and nobody is on the menu because the world is restored. It's a resurrection. Jesus in his resurrection body ate fish. That means we're going to be able to eat, which means we're going to be able to cook. He wasn't a ghost. You could poke the holes in his hand. He was flesh and blood, not a ghost. He was dead and now he's alive and he does ordinary things because he's still human. The ordinary gets resurrected and redeemed. At the end of the age, it's it's a new earth, a renewed earth, not a replacement earth. The renewal of all things Jesus spoke of. He's a carpenter. And he would finish his carpentry at the end of the age. I think of my morning routine. Um getting up, having a glass of water, taking my pills, feeding my cats, fixing my coffee, reading my Bible while drinking my coffee, fixing breakfast, getting my post-dispatch, reading the post-dispatch while eating my breakfast, breaking yet another egg over the stove, wondering how it's any different from the same egg 40 days ago that I broke over the stove in the same routine that's almost always the same, and it all runs over, all runs together, this, this passage of time, and we ask, is this meaningless? And it would be, except that God made us to do just these things, and God meets us in just these things. It's these ordinary routines that Jesus has come to save and rescue And they're the context in which we experience our relationship with God. In the new earth, one speaker says you're going to dance and you're going to play and you're going to sing and hug and kiss and make wine and create music and do science and economics and you're going to go skiing and you're going to go to school and work in the yard and sit in the sun and eat and laugh with your friends. Have you ever thanked God for making you human? Have you ever thanked him? for those daily routines, those weekly routines, for his presence there in the midst of it, even when you don't sense it. We live in a, a world that is a theater of the glory of God. I remember a flight to Houston that uh, I've, I've mentioned before, but it was one of those 6 a.m. flights due south to Houston where it's pitch black when you get in the plane, but then I would specifically wanted to see the sunrise, so I sat on the left side with the window and watched as the sun began to rise and you see those you first I think it's the violet and then you get the other colors and and then eventually you you see this egg yolk floating on the the edge of the horizon and you can see the curve of the earth and and I was sitting here watching it and I was realizing as we were heading due south that the sun wasn't really rising but our earth was rotating this way down and over toward the sun, hence the sun seemed to be rising. And I was thinking about the, the, the not only the rotation, but the revolution around the sun, knowing that six months from now, we will be as far from that sun on the other side as we are right now. And I was just picturing all of the great orbs of the universe and seeing it move around like 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 a ballet beautifully there for me to see. And I, I glanced back and other people were Pulling down their, their 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 little blinds and covering their face, they just wanted five more minutes of sleep. And 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 I was having a religious experience. And I think that this this happens every single day. In fact, this experience is happening somewhere on the earth, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This spectacle of the sun rising. It's fantastic. It's amazing. On United flight number, I can't remember. God right there in the middle of it. That's redeeming the ordinary. One author cautions parents, do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is the way of foolishness Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples, and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself. Jesus' townsfolk couldn't believe it. Jesus wasn't going to do miracles for them. His salvation was all about redeeming the ordinary life. It's too ordinary. But for those who want Jesus' salvation, it can be hard to receive. Why is it hard to receive the salvation that we have in Jesus? Because to receive the salvation that Jesus brings, you have to be ordinary. You have to be an ordinary sinner like everybody else. Not a super saint, not a paragon of virtue, not a righteous person without foibles or failures, no. An ordinary plain sinner like everybody else. Right here with the rest of us. An ordinary criminal, a common sinner in need of a savior. And that strikes at our pride. You remember how Jesus mentions Naaman here, (laughs) you know, who was healed of leprosy. But the story of, of Naaman, you know, he was a commander of the army of Syria. He was a right hand Man of the king in Damascus. And 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 but but he had leprosy, which could have been any of a number of skin diseases. They just use leprosy as the term for all of them. Um, But Naaman's wife had a servant girl from Israel who said, Oh, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you. And so Naaman talks to the king and he gets this huge treasury of wealth, just riches upon riches to go and try and convince this prophet to heal him uh, by, by by purchasing it. And uh, and he gets there and, and, and the prophet ends up telling him, Elisha says, okay, well, go down to the uh, Jericho River and wash in it like six times, seven times, and you'll be healed. And the guy's like, he gets angry. He's like, I'm not going to do that. I brought all this wealth. I'm going to pay for this. And, but, but, you know, the prophet, he's like, I'm Elisha. I'm not taking your money. I, it's God's grace, or not at all. And finally, Naaman does go down and he washes and he's healed. Uh, but God's grace was free, but it was not available for sale. It could not be earned. Naaman almost missed his salvation because it seemed too ordinary. He wanted to have to do something spectacular to attain it, not something ordinary. Jennifer Loudon says. I see a world that's enthralled to be the best, a world that increasingly equates being extraordinary with the right to exist. If you can't win the reality TV show, make a million your first year in business, write a mega best-selling book, be thin and have a great butt into your 70s, raise perfect children, have hot sex three times a week, why be at all? Surrender to God your perfectionism, your drive to be exceptional, Let the exception come from his working. Make it your goal to rejoice in the ordinary and to find God there as an ordinary sinner loved by an extraordinary God. Make it your goal to live an ordinary life being loved by God and loving God, loving other people, and dying and being forgotten on this earth, and that's perfectly fine because you're going to be with the Lord forever, loved as an ordinary sinner, loved by a God who saves. You know, being an ordinary center, you know, I, I think of the story I've, I've shared of, of a medical student. I think it was his residency, um, and, and for whatever reason, one week he was assigned to an STD clinic. And he, he, he got there. He was running late, but he got there Monday morning a little later than he planned on. And he, he's, you know, dressed for work, and he, he goes in there, and there's this just long line of men and this little window that's shut at the end of the line. And so he walks up to the front of the line past all the other guys, and he taps on the window, and he waits. Waits, taps again, eventually it opens up. What do you want? Get in line. Says, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm here for, I'm, I'm expected here. I don't care, get in line. So he goes and he stands in line for a second and then he, he thinks, no, no, he goes back up. He, she opens it up again. She's even more irritated. Uh, you don't understand, I'm a doctor. And she says, I don't care if you're the Pope in Rome. You got it the same way they did. Get back to the back of the line. So he goes to the back of the line and as he's sitting there in this clinic, with all these other men, a weight of shame comes over him as for the first time he experiences what it's like to truly be a sinner, to just be an ordinary sinner like everyone else who's done all the, his mistakes, might have been different mistakes, but just be there. That's, that's when you know that there is none righteous, no, not even one, none who seeks God, but there is God's grace because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous but a, he, he came to call sinners he was never a friend of the righteous he was a friend of sinners and that's where you have to stand right there among the ordinary sinners because that's also where Jesus chose to stand you can pick up on the hint of mockery in the townspeople's comments when they say isn't this Joseph's son realize within Nazareth that was an open question they had been there when he was born. You know, they knew that 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 Jesus was conceived out of wedlock, and they didn't know whose son he is. In fact, in in, in Luke's account, I believe they even say, "Isn't this the son of Mary?" Uh, it's actually Matthew's account, uh, which which is, you never say that in Hebrew. It's always so and so son of so and so. You know, Yitzhak bin Rabin, or whatever. You know, so and so the son of so and so. It's never the the mother, uh, but. They'd heard accounts. This is a small town. It's filled with gossip. They're questioning whether Jesus was legitimate to begin with, and now he's claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, you know, Jesus. There was never a time in his life in which he was not identified with sinners, on account of the circumstances of his conception, and that's where he's going to stand with sinners. That's the cross on which he bears the sin and the shame of the world, on which the Father rejects him so that he'll never reject you. That's the cross on which he takes the blame and the gossip of the townsfolk finally becomes true in an act so dark and so brutal and yet so brilliant and unimaginable and it's stunning in its beauty. The Son of God becomes illegitimate on the cross, taking our punishment, so that we might become legitimate in his place, so that ordinary sinners like us can meet an extraordinary Savior, so that ordinary life itself is redeemed and we can know God in the now as a Father who loves us and who made the ultimate sacrifice to have us. Ben Kingsley's wound stemmed from his own childhood. His parents never encouraged him, they never said, Good job. They never praised him, they never honored him, they never celebrated him. It was always this feeling that he was being punished, that he'd done something wrong. And so he strove, and he made such great accomplishments as an actor. You know, he he won every award conceivable, driven by what he calls this wound inside of him. But it was never enough. And then, in 2002, something changed all of that. Something happened that profoundly changed his acting, even his whole perspective on life. It was in 2002 that Kingsley was summoned to Buckingham Palace with a personal meeting with the queen, and there the queen knighted him, Sir Ben Kingsley. It was only then that he says he began to feel complete. He says, my work now isn't compensating for anything that's missing. It's become my craft, and I can enjoy it and I can love it. Friends, the real king, the true king, has summoned you into his palace. Ordinary sinners like us and he has knighted you, adopting you as his very own, placing upon you his nobility, the honor of Jesus, whose name you now bear. You have—you don't have to accomplish. You don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to be successful. You just have to be loved by the God who loves sinners and has called you, ordinary you, into his kingdom. Jesus set aside his glory to become ordinary like us, so that in him we might have our ordinary lives redeemed into a relationship with him. Let's pray.